0: When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So read the instructions for kings in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And we have, in the course of our study, found our way into the age of kings in Israel we begun our journey through this wonderful book a few weeks ago, four weeks ago, I can't keep up, some time ago, and uh, in chapter one, we said there's one question that's sort of dominating the front end of the book. David is old and cold and dying. Abishad can't even keep him warm. And so the question is, who will be king? Who will be king when David is gone? were provided an answer in that chapter. It's going to be Solomon, despite Adonijah's best efforts to usurp him. We come into chapter 2, and the question that hangs above this chapter is, will Solomon's kingdom be established? Will this transition from David to Solomon work? We read in chapter 2 and verse 12, so Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was. Firmly established. And at the conclusion of chapter 2, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And now we come to chapter 3. And the question this morning before us is this. What kind of king will Solomon be? Is he going to be the kind of king who rules justly, following the ways of the Lord his God? A kind of king who rules according to his own whim and whimsy. What kind of king will Solomon be? Solomon is a figure who is not um, exactly painted in black and white for us. He's not someone that, that the author intends for us to look at as entirely righteous and good all the time. And he's also not somebody that we are to look at and understand as, well, entirely bad and sinful all the time. Solomon is Solomon the gray. He's a bit of a a mixed bag. He's inconsistent, imperfect. He's a sinner. And yet he loves the Lord. This is why we have so much to learn from his life, because we're so much like him. Holy, chosen by the Lord, lovers of God, and at the same time, inconsistent, imperfect, sinful. It's as Martin Luther said, we Christians are justus et peccator. That's the extent of my Latin, by the way. I think it's Latin, I'm not sure. But it just means, at the same time, righteous and sinner. This is true of us in Christ. We've been declared righteous in Christ once for all. We're growing in righteousness as we progress in our sanctification, becoming more like the God who has saved us, and at the same time, we are imperfect and sinful. And so, we have much to learn from the life of Solomon and from these words to us in Kings this morning. Our Lessons from Solomon continue in the first 15 verses of chapter 3. You can see the outline there before you, and it it looks a little bit more complex than it is. I should have just given you the two points. Really what I want you to see is there's going to be a contrast I'm going to try to draw out for us during our time together this morning between uh, Solomon's own wisdom, which is effective, but not always best, but not always right, a, a worldly sort of wisdom, and God's wisdom, the wisdom or the listening heart that Solomon will ask for from God. You see your main idea there this morning, I kept that part simple. Uh, God gives. We serve, friends, the giving God. God is extravagantly generous, and especially to us, his people. We'll see this this morning as he gives abundantly to King Solomon. And then I want to exhort you, in light of who God is, to love Him and live to please Him, to love and please God. With that in mind, let's pray, and we'll begin sauntering through the text this morning. Father, we thank you for this Lord's day. What a privilege it is to gather together and to worship you with song and prayer and by participating together in the Lord's Supper. What a privilege it is to call you Father, to know you as Father rather than as Judge because of the wonderful work of Jesus Christ who shed His blood for us. Lord, we don't know how many Sundays we have. We don't know how many times we will get the opportunity to obey Your Word by gathering together and encouraging one another. And so Lord we pray that you would help us to count this time as valuable as precious to us. You have assembled us here together in this place and we pray that you would give us each listening hearts so we might hear your word and live according to it. This we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Let me at verse 1 of chapter 3. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The alarm bell should be going off here. Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. And the people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because No house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statues of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Solomon's reign is underway, his kingdom is established, and right here at the front end of chapter 3, we see that he is continuing to try to more firmly establish his kingdom. And the author is sort of sprinkling for us some of these ominous seeds that we will watch germinate throughout Solomon's reign. We've seen a few of them already in chapter 2. Remember, David, when he's coming close to the time to die, tells Solomon to take care of some things. He says, make sure uh, that you take out Joab and Shimei and you deal with Abiathar, the high priest. And of course, it ends up he has to deal with Adonijah too. But if you remember in chapter 2, Solomon's kind of carrying out David's will and, and we're left kind of going, it seems like justice, but is it justice, right? He sends, he sends the punisher, uh, Benaiah, to, to take out Adonijah after Adonijah asks for Abishag. It really sort of seems like he's trying to get in on the kingship again, and so takes him out. And then he expels from the priesthood Abiathar. And then he, he goes and he kills Joab at the altar. Joab's taking hold of the horns of the altar, and he's like, "Don't can't kill me here. And Solomon's like, want to bet? The punisher goes and does what he does. And then there's Shimei who had cursed David when Absalom had rebelled and David was leaving the city, threw rocks at him, cursed him, spit on him. Really nasty stuff. And then when David was coming back into his kingdom, having quelled the rebellion, Shimei comes to him and says, basically, hey, my bad. Had it wrong there. Please don't kill me. And David says, I'm not going to kill you. You won't die by my hand. And it sounds a lot like a pardon, and, and I think that's probably what it sounded like to Shimei. But then, towards the end of his life, David says to Solomon, Hey, take care of of Shimei, because he cursed me. And so Solomon, in the course of kind of laying out this justice question mark to help establish his kingdom, comes to Shimei and says, All right, I'm going to make you live in Jerusalem away from your land. And if you go outside of the boundaries that I've set, well, it's not going to go well for you. And of course, after some time passes, Shimei goes outside of the boundaries, probably thoughtlessly. Returns back to the boundaries inside of which he is to dwell. Solomon had someone watching him, and I think it was Benaiah again, probably. He ends up dead. And so we come to chapter three, and we're going the kingdom is established, but what kind of kingdom? Is this justice? It's, it's cloudy at best. Is Solomon the right kind of king or is he the wrong kind of king? Is he operating according to his whim and whimsy, according to worldly wisdom, or, or is he carrying out God's prescriptions? It's not, it's not exactly clear. And the author gives us three, three more seeds that are a little ominous. First, we see that Solomon takes a wife of a foreign faith. You see that Right there in verse 1. He marries Pharaoh's daughter. This is not something that any Israelite is allowed to do. You look in Leviticus, and at the beginning of chapter 17, they're told, basically, don't marry all the people that were in the land. And it's not a race thing. He's not saying, don't marry these people because they're a different race than you. It is a religion thing. Don't marry these foreign women because they will bring with them foreign gods. And you will find your heart chasing after those foreign gods. Don't do that. And here we we see that Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter. Most of us are probably familiar with how Solomon's story ends too, are we not? Many, many foreign wives. spiritual adultery, and false worship. There's a lesson in there for all of us that we ought to guard our hearts and make sure we are exclusively devoted to the Lord. There's a message for those of us who may be unmarried and seeking a spouse. God does not prevent us, prevent, does not permit us to marry someone of a different religion. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. You are not to be unequally yoked. Yoke is that thing, I think, some of you farm, I don't know. Goes around two animals, puts them together. Saying don't be joined together with someone who isn't also a Christian. It's not permitted. Missionary dating is a bad idea. The Bible supports marriages of couples from different races and backgrounds and all walks of life, but it does not support the union of people from different faiths. Solomon finds himself a foreign wife, disobedience to the word of God. We also see that Solomon has put his faith in a foreign power, and not just any foreign power, Egypt, right? When you Like Yes, God offers salvation to all the nations. It's predicted by the prophets, and that includes Egypt. You see it in Isaiah. But Egypt, throughout the Old Covenant, is depicted and cast in negative light. Egypt is the place of oppression. Egypt is where the sons of Israel were drowned in the river. Egypt is the place of slavery. It is Egypt's gods whom Yahweh, the God of Israel, defeated over and over again by way of the ten plagues. Egypt is the enemy. And Solomon, in order to make sure his kingdom is secure, is quite literally sleeping with the enemy. And this is a sin that gets repeated in Israel's history as after Solomon, time and again, kings of Israel look to Egypt for an alliance that might bring them security against other enemies. And each time it's a misstep and it's a mistake. Because what they are doing in seeking out this alliance, well, they're betraying their own lack of trust in God. This is what Solomon does. He says, hey, this makes sense from a worldly perspective. We're going to forge this alliance. I'm going to take a a foreign wife. Countries do it all the time. At this point in history, I don't know if it gets done anymore. We'll shore up our borders. And yet, wise as it seems, it's not according to the wisdom of God. He betrays his own trust in God. doesn't really... Trust God to establish His kingdom all on his own, and it reveals that He's actually willing to break God's law to do what He wants, or what He thinks is best. Mary's four and why. I wonder, can you relate? Ever willing to break God's law? Ignore God's word so that you can get what you want or work out your life in a way that you think is best. This is what Solomon does here. Friends, we must learn and relearn the, this basic truth of Christianity, right? Trust God. Trust God. Believe Him. must refuse, and this is a theme, right, to operate according to our own worldly wisdom. Rather, we must resolve to operate according to God's wisdom. Follow Paul's counsel in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Think that, think mind, also think heart there, I'll tell you why in a minute. By the renewal of your mind, heart, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. We need to make sure that we are seeking God's wisdom and God's ways rather than our own oftentimes we'll find that they are misaligned. Now, the third ominous seed we see scattered about at the front end of chapter 3 is this business about Solomon sacrificing in, I put four in places because I like, I don't know if it's alliteration, but I tried to use the same word again and again. But he's, he's worshiping at high places, as are all the people. What are high places? Well, high places are basically altars, and they are altars that could be put up on top of a hill, or down in a valley. They are high places that are constructed by both Israelites and Canaanites. Now in Kings, and most of the Bible, high places are always associated with pagan worship. In fact, one of the bellwethers that the author of Kings will use for us to evaluate if a king is good or not, is whether or not he removed the high places. Take that business together with the fact that God commands his people in Leviticus to not worship anywhere but before the tent of meeting and eventually the temple. We put those two things together and we realize worship on these high places, even if it is well intended and aimed at Yahweh, is wrong. It's sinful. This was a lesson we learned in Leviticus. See, I told you all Leviticus was going to be worth it. Remember in chapter 10, there's Nadab and Abihu, and they're like, we love the Lord, we're going to worship him however we want to worship him. And so they get drunk, they have strange fire in their hands, and they're like, we're going to the Holy of Holies. And they go in, and God consumes them. They die. And the hook is, you shall not worship the Lord your God in this way. We learn that we can't just worship God however we want. We are to worship him according to his word. The question comes, why then does God not destroy Solomon and all who are like him worshiping at these high places? The answer is twofold. One, they're not rolling up into the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is most locally and powerfully manifest. Right? Holy of Holies is supposed to be representative of a throne room. They're not going into this immediate presence of God. That's one. And then the second reason is that that God is gracious. God is so gracious. so, So lesson for us, we must worship God according to his word, not according to what we think works best or is most pragmatic. Practically what that means for us Christians is, and this is one I hear a lot, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to gather together with other Christians on Sunday morning to worship the Lord. I don't need to belong to a church. I, God and I have an understanding. We have our own deal. It's not in the Bible. I just know it because I, I feel it. And, and I go into, you know, we live in a beautiful area here in Appalachia, and I, I go into the mountains, and I hike, and, and I, you know... Sometimes I take my Bible, but sometimes I just I take my Washington Post or my New York Times with me, and I just, I just sit there and read and think and, and look out onto the valley, and that is my time with God. That's how I worship God. Okay, great, you can worship God. All of life is worship. We can devote everything to God's glory, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We're worshiping people. But what the Bible does tell us in regards to our specific worship of God is that we must not give up gathering together in an assembly like this to worship Him. That we are required to hold one another accountable to holiness. That we are to submit to our leaders and follow their way of life. God is to be worshipped according to to his word, not according to what you think works best. As I said, though, God is gracious. And though there are ominous seeds here, the overall portrait of Solomon from this point forward until his idolatry is glowing. I mean, we are to see Solomon in brilliant colors and to be really, really impressed with all that God does through him. And some of that starts even here in verse 3. You see that in verse 3? Solomon loved the Lord. Can you guess how often that's said of somebody in the Bible? It's Not often. In fact, this is the only place in the Old Testament that it's said of a figure. Solomon loved The Lord walking in the statues of David, his father. And then you have that, but he sacrificed at these places. Solomon loved the Lord. Now this is is something that all of us should strive towards. That someone would describe us thus. I wonder, brother, sister Christian, if someone were to reflect on your life, giving description of it to someone else, how long would it take them to get to loved the Lord? My hope is is that we would all strive to have that written on our tombstones. Solomon loved the Lord. And like we said, he's Solomon in the gray. He's, he's worshipping in a way that's not best. And yet God continues to be gracious. God gives Look at this at verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. I love this. I love this. Solomon's imperfect in his worship. He's inconsistent in his piety. He's not, he's not listening to the scripture completely, and yet God meets him. is that encouraging for you when you find that your life has sin in it? not as consistent with God's word as you would like, that he, he still meets his people. He meets Solomon and he asks him, what, what shall I give you? God is so generous. In James chapter 1, verse 17, we read, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Non-Christian, every good thing you have is a gift from God. Every good thing you have is from God. And it's meant to serve as a sign in your life, pointing your whole life to Him. God's good gifts are meant to lead you to faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is a good gift giver. I encourage you this morning, non-Christian, to see how good God is. He was good enough. father was good enough to send his one and only son to take on flesh to die a bloody death on the cross in the place of sinners all who will repent of their sin let's turn from their sin and trust in jesus god wants you to know that turn from your sin this morning and trust Christ. The good gifts of God are meant to point you in that direction. Christian, let us, let us too meditate on the goodness and the generosity of God. Love that verse 18 in, in James 1. of His own will He brought us forth, that has caused us to be born, by the word of truth. We know God because of His goodness to us. Because of that wonderful gift of salvation. It ought to lead us to to praise and give Him thanks. Every gift of God, From, from our salvation, which was purchased by Christ, to our families and our loved ones, to football, to our daily bread. All of it is meant to elicit praise and worship of our great God and King. Do you give God thanks for his many good gifts? God is so good, and he he asks Solomon, What shall I give you? It's a revealing question. It reveals God's character, as we've talked about a bit. And it's going to reveal Solomon. Look how Solomon responds. Verse 6. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart, circle that heart, toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. So what Solomon's doing on the front end of this prayer to God is he's kind of outlining God's faithfulness. He's recounting how God has kept promises. So he said, All right, uh, my father David, upright of heart towards you, and you have kept for him this great and steadfast love. You've given him a son to sit on his throne, just like he promised. Now he's going to come to the second thing. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king. You've made me king in place of David, my father. All right, you're two for two. You've kept these promises. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out, or come in. He's not saying he's a little child. He's a full-grown man at this point, probably has a beard. He's just saying, I don't, I'm not as wise as I ought to be. And your servant is in the midst, here's promise number three, of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Do you remember the promise to Abraham, Genesis 22? Your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. As many as the sand on the seashore. God has been faithful in multiplying his people. So he's going, you've been faithful, you've been faithful, you've been faithful. Almost like he's, you know, I, I should be thankful for this. You deliver on your promises. You've asked me what I want. I know that you are able to give to me my requests. I actually think this is a good idea for us in our prayer lives. To begin with thanksgiving recognizing all the wonderful things that that God has done for us. Uh, The old, count your blessings, name them one by one. This is a good idea. It is a good idea to itemize how God has been faithful to us from His promises to Noah, to Abraham, all the way to the empty tomb and into our own lives. God is faithful. He keeps His Word. He Works all things together for the good of His people and for His glory. And therefore, He he lures us to prayer with His goodness. What shall I give you, He asks. And Solomon finally gets to it in verse 9. Give your servant, therefore, I love my ESV, I think it's a great translation, that's why we use it. But this is one of the few places your translators, I think, stumble. You pick up a, a CSB, you know, Christian Standard Bible, the ESV is the elect standard version. But you pick up, you pick up your CSB or your NASB or, or most any other translation, and they're gonna do a rendering that is better here because they're going to translate the word mind as the word heart. And literally, what Solomon asks for here is a listening heart. Sometimes you see receiving heart in some of your translations. A listening heart. Now think back to to verse 6. Hey, David had, you were good to to my father David, and he had uprightness of what? Heart towards you. so, So give your servant, therefore, a listening heart to govern your people. That I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? They so go well. What is it that Solomon asks for? A, a listening heart. And in our world, we typically have a hard and fast division: mind and heart. Right? And what the ESV translators are doing is they're trying to help us understand what's going on here, and what your people that bring it across literally they, they want us to understand too that the heart and the mind are not separate. They're not hermetically sealed off from one another in Hebrew thought. You see, for the Israelites, uh, the mind, how you think, was kept in the heart so that intellect and affections could both be described as actions of the heart. With me? And so when Solomon asks for a listening heart, uh, what he's asking for is a heart or a mind, right, that is able to discern good from evil. He wants an obedient heart. A heart that understands and conforms itself to God's will and God's word. A listening heart, right? If If I say to my kids, I want you to listen to me. Or, more often, why aren't you listening to me? What I'm saying is, I want you to obey me. You see, Solomon's saying, give me an obedient heart. Give me a heart that is after your will and your word and your way so that I can act rightly as I am leading your people as their king. As for a listening heart. And then notice the purpose. Why does he ask for a listening heart? To govern your people to govern the people justly. Solomon's first concern is is not himself, but the people. Now, if you hear that and you go, huh, this means that the next time I pray, maybe even right now, I am going going to ask for wisdom because, well, God gives it, and he gives a lot more because I read ahead. Look at verse 11. God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. That usually doesn't happen in the Bible. According to your word, Solomon. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning, and the word there is lev, which is heart. I give you a wise and discerning heart, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So if you're, if you're sitting back and you're, you're thinking, all right, this works out good for Solomon. He, he asks for wisdom. God is like, impressive. You know? no, that's great. Good request. And then he says, I'm going to give you even more than you asked for, beyond measure, because he's the giving God. If you're, if you're sitting there and going, going home, I'm praying for wisdom, and finally that yacht that I've had my eye on, Gonna be mine. Lamborghini is coming. That is that is wrong-headed prosperity theology. Solomon's motive for wisdom is he's not asking to get more stuff for himself. What's he asking for? To, to govern the people. The reason that he wants wisdom and a listening heart, yes, to, to love God, I'm sure, but also to serve God's people. To serve God's people. The question is a revealing one. It reveals God as the giving God. It reveals Solomon as, hey, he's pretty smart in his own right, asking for wisdom. He asks for something that will serve not himself, primarily, but the people of God. I wonder, Christian, how would you answer this question? Because the question is a revealing one. God says to you, what shall I give you? You're answering, better job, more money, better health. Is your response centered on yourself or on service to the people of God? I wonder how many of us presented with this question, what shall I give you, would respond with an answer that had as its goal the building up of the body of Christ and the mission of the gospel is a revealing question. Solomon asks for wisdom. And, and he's, he's given it, right? He's given more than what he asked for. We see that in 11 through 14. He's also, remember remember back in chapter 2 and at the beginning here, he had some of these ominous seeds and we're like, what kind of king is Solomon going to be? Just, trustworthy? Well, well the proof is going to come in the, next, the, the latter half of chapter 3 and we'll, we'll get to that next week. Basically, there's a baby. Two women say it's theirs. He says, we'll cut it in half. Uh, the one woman's like, no, nah, you shouldn't do that. And The other woman's like, that's cool. Uh, and he figures out who the mom is. Uh, but, but the result of all of that comes to us in verse 28. Listen, and all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king. Why? Because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And so Solomon asks for a heart like David's, a listening heart, and God says, Behold, a wise and discerning heart I give you, and now we see he is doing justice in the kingdom. We went from being not so sure about what kind of King Solomon was going to be because he was operating in his own wisdom, the best he could, the way he saw fit, and now we don't have any questions that he's going to rule as a just king because he's operating according to God's wisdom. good results see even his worship changes he's worshiping at Gibeon and and that's that's where the Lord appears to him in a dream you see that in verses four and five and you would think he does what characters in the Bible most often do when God appears to them somewhere throw up an altar there stone of remembrance you'd think he'd start worshiping there again immediately that's not what he does God gives him a listening heart And all of a sudden, where does his worship go? Verse 15, And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream, then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. He's got his worship right now too. God has given him a listening heart, an obedient heart. And so now his worship is in the right direction and his kingdom is going to be established under his wise administration of justice. God's wisdom is better than worldly wisdom. And yet it's so hard for us to choose to pursue obedience to God's Word rather than what we think best fits a situation. Oftentimes we have sort of an ethereal, intangible, like you can't get a hold of it sort of idea of what wisdom is. In the Bible, it's pretty concrete. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the wise man obeys the commands of the Lord. Wisdom is to have a listening heart. It's to have an obedient heart. It's to obey God's Word. My prayer is that we would be a wise people. That we wouldn't be, as Romans says, conformed to the pattern of the world, but transformed by the renewal of our our minds, our hearts, how we think, how we behave. One last little section here. Notice how God responds to, to Solomon's prayer. What's he say? I mean, do you see it? Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this. Isn't that incredible? I, I want to be, be clear here. I think there's confusion. Uh, on the, let's, let's hold these two truths together. We'll, we'll call one union and the other Communion. Kind of work together. Our union with Christ, our union to God through our faith in Christ, means that our standing with God is sure and certain. We have been made right with God. What's true of Jesus is true of us. We did this a few weeks ago. Remember when Jesus is baptized, uh, the Father says to him in Matthew 3.17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And if you are a Christian and you want to know what God thinks about you, you can put your name in that sentence, right? And you can say, uh, Jeremiah or, or Dale or even Mike. Is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If you are united to God through faith in Christ, you're united to God God is pleased with you. Union. What this doesn't mean is that you are unable to displease or to please God. You still with me? So you're in the family of God, union. Now we're going to start talking about communion. But your communion with God, well, that can can change. The level of intimacy you feel with God can change on the basis of of your actions, I mean think of it like this. Um, I am married to my wife, that makes sense. Uh, but if if I don't ever talk to Chelsea and I you know I move into a friend's basement and I only come home once a week and I don't listen to her ever, we're gonna be married, union, but our communion, right the state of our marriage, well, it's not gonna be great. But if I do those things, if i if I listen to her and Whisper sweet nothings into her ear and go on dates and the stuff you're supposed to do. Well, our relationship, our communion, is going to be more vibrant. Maybe, maybe the parent son analogy will work better here. Uh, we are adopted into the family of God, and our relationship, how we relate to the Father, we're going to experience intimacy more or less based on our obedience to the Father, right? So, when when your kids disobey you, well, certainly they can displease you, but you're not, you're not going, you're not in the family anymore. Just, no, they're still your son, still your daughter. And likewise, your kids have probably pleased you at one point or another in your life. Done, done something where you're like, I'm so proud of you. Likewise, God, we, we can please God. This is the point I've been getting to. So, union united to Christ. Communion, where we're at in our relationship with God can can change. This doesn't change with me. I just, I think so many of us believe the lie that we cannot live lives that are pleasing to God. Right? So if I would ask, Christian, can you please God? I think many of us would be tempted to say no. But the answer is yes, we can please God. And in fact, this is the motivation for godly living that is held out to us over and over again throughout Scripture. I'm just going to give you a few from the New Testament. Colossians 1:10, "Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God." 1 Thessalonians 2:4. "We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Church, we ought to aim at pleasing God, not at earning our salvation, right? We've put our faith in Christ, we're in the family. But because we're in the family, we're motivated, we've received that love of Christ, we are then motivated or compelled by that love to please our good Heavenly Father. You can please God. Verse 10 really is amazing. It pleased the Lord. Are your prayers pleasing to the Lord? Is your life pleasing to the Lord? It can be. Ask for a listening heart. Obey His Word. This pleases God and brings Him glory. We should follow the example of Christ Jesus our Lord. who didn't live to please Himself, but rather chose to be despised among men. Smitten, stricken, and afflicted. He chose to humble himself as a servant to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he would be hailed as the king he is, so that you and I could be reconciled to God and to one another, and so that God would be pleased glorified. Let us walk in the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that it would be a mirror to us, allowing us to see ourselves. We ask, Father, that you would give each one of us listening hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would change our hearts, that we might receive Your Word. Lord Jesus, we praise You. All the blessings of God are ours because of Your work on the cross and Your resurrection from the grave. We love You. And it's in Your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.